0: Hello and welcome to NewsHour. It's coming to you live from the BBC World Service studios in London. I'm Tim Franks. In a moment, what hope for a pause in the slaughter in Syria? We'll hear from Eastern Ghouta and from the centre of Damascus. Later on the programme, over the weekend, China's Communist Party announced plans that would allow President Xi Jinping to stay in power pretty much for as long as he wants. We'll debate the prospect for China and for the rest of the world.
1: What we're dealing with is the hopefully the benign monarch or the philosopher king, and, and one hopes that it will turn out more for the, the good than for the evil. One hopes, one hopes. He said it twice.
2: What is there beyond hope that you think this is going to turn out all right?
0: More on that in about 30 minutes. First, though, to Syria and the prospect of a sliver of respite. It was Saturday, two days ago, that the UN Security Council, after exhaustive negotiations, came up with its rather imprecise formulation that all parties cease hostilities without delay. What we now have is the possibility of a temporary halt, five hours per day, and without delay means these daily pauses should start tomorrow, Tuesday. That, in any case, is what one of the key powers in Syria has ordered – in the shape of the Russian president, Vladimir Putin. He's also suggested that a humanitarian corridor be set up to allow civilians in the besieged and blasted enclave of eastern Ghouta, close to Damascus, to leave. We'll try to find out how likely that is in a moment. First, let's get an impression of life under bombardment in eastern Ghouta with a man we've heard from before. He's called Muayed. He's 29 years old and has spent the past week living in a basement with his wife, two young children and dozens of neighbours. He used his phone to record some of his experiences for us, and his account begins just hours after that UN vote of the weekend when he thought it might finally be safe to venture above ground.
3: This is the first time I give out of my basement. It's silent among destructions. It's really creepy. Now it's the blame. Oh my God, it's the blame. Right now, there, uh, sorry, last night was uh, bombing and uh, shelling even at uh, 12 uh, a.m. Now, now it's, uh, uh, while I talk to you, there's a gunfire. And near us. So it's not the ceasefire. Uh, me and my family and the neighbors, we have been living in the basement for a week. Uh, we literally live in the basement, we eat, we sleep. We hear about 50 or 70 people with, uh, among uh, children and women. I don't have anything in my house, I don't have any sugar, any rice, any milk, any kind. And my uh, my wife even doesn't feed my daughter uh, with her milk.
0: Muayyad, in eastern Ghouta, well, just before we came on air, uh, we called Muayyad up to find out if he was going to take advantage of this temporary safe passage proposed by the Russians.
3: The decision of leaving your territory, leaving your apartment, leaving your relative, it's a big decision. It's not just an overnight to make this call. That's for A. B, frankly, myself, I don't trust Russians. I don't trust them because they are uh, a partner of destructions. Frankly, I myself, I don't trust my family uh, in this uh, five hours' truth.
0: Tell me what life has been like just today. Has there been a, a lessening of the bombardment? I-
3: Yes, it's more calmer, but uh, even before I talked to you, a few minutes ago, there was a, an air raid.
0: But given that, are you not willing to take the chance to get your family, perhaps for a short time, to to uh, a safer place?
3: Friend, uh, my friend, uh, take my position to you. Do you trust your killers? Do you trust? The, the regime that is killing you five years, maybe seven now? Do you trust him? Do you trust him on your family, on your wife? Do you trust the Russians that is bombing and shelling us from the beginning of this brutal war? I, it's really a big decision for a father to make. It's really, uh, how can I trust my kids, my three-year-old son and my one-year-old daughter to this uh, dictators or this murderers. I'm sorry, I don't want to talk heavy talk, but that's what I feel. I want peace to my family. I want peace to my wife. I want my children to educate well, to go to college, but I don't trust my killers. I don't trust them with their government. I trust the United Nation. I trust the UK. I trust many uh, countries, not like the Russians are the the Syrian government right now.
0: What do you say to those who are in Eastern Ghouta who are directing fire out of the neighbourhood you live in towards <laughs> Damascus? The the militants who are firing mortars that are killing people in in the centre of the capital, and they're the reason that the Syrian government and their supporters, their allies, say that they they need to have this bombardment of Eastern Ghouta.
3: My friend, here in Eastern Ghouta, uh, there's more than one uh, military formation. There's some members of Al-Qaeda, I hate, him. I hate them so much, I hate them more than the Assad regime. I uh, hope that they are kicked out of Eastern Ghouta. And I say to that group, you should be in court before the Assad regime.
0: That was Muayyad, a resident of eastern Ghouta. Listening to what he had to say, uh, we got on the line, Buthaina Shaban, she's a political advisor to President Assad. Was she concerned at all that the level of bombardment going into eastern Ghouta was disproportionate to the a uh, mortar fire that was coming out of that enclave and into the capital.
4: Well, I only wish uh, Tim that uh, Euro program would uh, cover at least uh, a bit of the story. Since uh, two thousand and twelve, over eighty thousand mortars have been fired into civilians into Damascus and particularly during the time of children going to school or coming out of school. uh, Even in the last Week, we have more than a thousand multi missiles have been fired by those who are uh, speaking about uh, uh, their family and about uh, their fears of the regime and uh, and their fear of the of, of, of the country. Um, I think um, the world should have at least an inkling of what five million Syrian people in Damascus had been going through due to the criminal acts perpetrated by the terrorists in eastern Ghouta and near Damascus. However, there are civilians who are being held as human shields by these
0: terrorists. Yeah, we and have been, enough. just just to g- get a word in edgeways, we have been covering, as we did in that interview, the fact that uh, people in central Damascus have been uh, hit by these mortar shells. The, nonetheless, vastly more people are dying inside eastern Ghouta. The number of militants who are associated with Al-Qaeda, the proscribed terrorist organisation, is thought to number no more than a few hundred. There are 400,000 people in eastern Ghouta. Three-quarters of them, according to the United Nations, are in desperate need of humanitarian assistance, have uh, have needed that for years, and several hundred have died this month. There is no equivalence in the misery that they're experiencing with what is being experienced in Damascus.
4: Unfortunately, the statement you have been just said is consistent with the propaganda that is um, initiated by Western countries. But I'm I'm quoting from the United Nations. I'm
0: quoting from the United Nations. Is that propaganda as well? I'm
4: sorry. I'm sorry. It is irrelevant to our reality. I'm living here. Our children, our grandchildren cannot go to school for the last two weeks. And unfortunately, you know, instead of talking about a bit of the crisis, we talk about the role of UK, France, United States in prolonging the misery of the Syrian people. Every time we are about to defeat terrorism, the United States brings more arms, and Turkey uh, invades our, our area. So the whole Syrian crisis has to be seen in a perspective that our country, our people, all our people are being targeted, including the civilians that are being held as a human shield by terrorists in eastern Ghouta. So we really have to speak a different language that truly aims at putting an end to this horrid war on the Syrian people in our hospitals, schools, institutions, on our lives, on our streets. You know, every time any person goes out, he bids his family goodbye in Damascus because he might never come back, because you never know... Best strikes at every single spot in Damascus right.
0: by those terrorists. OK, but you're saying in that case, just to be clear about this, you believe that there is an equivalence of suffering from the people in central no, no. Damascus with eastern Ghouta?
4: No, no, I'm sorry, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that we should reach an end to this crisis. And the West should not only cry out when we try to approve terrorism. The West should cry out also when hundreds of our young children are being, their legs are being amputated, their eyes are being taken out by the missiles. And we never heard any, uh, any, any denunciation of
0: these, of what is happening to our people. Bouthaina Shaban, she's a political advisor to the Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. She was talking to me from Damascus. Uh, just a brief word about something that's coming up uh, later on the programme. Saudi Arabia has sacked its entire top military brass. Why?
5: I think one has to look at the fact that there has been a war for almost three years in Yemen, which was absolutely his initiative, his decision, and it heralded this much more different way of doing things in Saudi Arabia that he's been responsible for, and it's not working out. It hasn't achieved a knockout blow, it hasn't achieved victory, so somebody's got to pay the price of this,
0: somebody's got to be the scapegoat. And the belong to the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. We'll uh, hear more about that in about 30 minutes here on NewsHour. A reminder of the main headlines from the BBC newsroom. Russia says there will be a daily five-hour pause in the fighting in Syria from Tuesday to allow civilians to flee the enclave of eastern Ghouta. As I just mentioned, Saudi Arabia has sacked the entire military top brass. The move comes as the war in Yemen, where a Saudi-led coalition is fighting rebels, is nearing the end of its third year. The uh, new president of South Africa, Cyril Ramaphosa, has unveiled his first cabinet uh, and he has sacked the Zuma-era finance minister. And the European Union has condemned the murder of a Slovak investigative journalist, Jan Kuciak, saying no democracy can survive without a free press. We'll be talking to a friend of that murdered man on NewsHour in about five minutes. This is News Hour, live from the BBC in London with me, Tim Franks. Yesterday on the programme, we brought you reports of at least two protesters being shot dead in Kinshasa, the capital of the Democratic Republic of Congo. There's an increasingly vocal campaign in the DRC calling for President Laurent Kabila, whose term in office officially uh, was due to end in 2016, to step down now and for elections to be held. But the unrest extends far beyond the capital. This vast country is roiled by instability. Catherine Biarahunga reports now from Ituri province in the northeast.
6: Sunday service at Bunya's main cathedral is packed inside and outside. The congregation is far bigger than usual because of all the displaced people who have arrived in town. Most of the displaced are staying with friends or family and even strangers who are opening their doors for them. Francoise Tobagamba is a 38 year old mother. Of five. When the conflict began, she was constructing a mud house. It's not yet finished, but this is where 40 people are staying. Francoise has lived through war before and knows what it's like to run away from home with nothing. So she's decided to help. The government needs to assist them so that I can help them more. This place is out in the open and they feel cold. There is no mattress, no food, clothes or soap. Thousands have crowded the government hospital. It's the only place to get support from aid agencies, but it's a fight.
0: Yes, I'm Moses. I'm one of uh, the one who are descri- uh, describing uh, goods for uh, those who have come from the other side of uh, Njugu.
6: And, and what are the challenges that you're facing in trying to offer them
0: support? Challenges that uh, people are so many, but goods are, are few. Now, you know, calling one by one, giving them food, uh, cloth, that is not easy. That is the very difficult problem that we are facing.
6: In the DRC, nearly 5 million people have fled their homes because of a web of conflicts. It happens as President Joseph Kabila delays elections, leading to a growing power vacuum. Here in Ituri province, the violence is blamed on a long-standing ethnic rivalry between the Hema and Lendus. Deda Tikpa is a Lendu leader, and I put it to him that most of the killings and destruction are being blamed on the Lendus.
3: We noticed that HEMA provoke a lot, disturb, and often the lend react. Unfortunately, sometimes beyond the provocation.
6: When you say provocation, what kind of things would HEMA do to provoke such attacks?
7: In this
3: particular case, we've taken note, for example of setting Lendo's house on fire. We have also taken note of pillages, for example, in the centre of Mbi.
6: Despite the cake, music and fancy clothes, it's a sombre mood as Isaac Bamarachi weds his bride, Hajra, Isaac's father, Haj Ibrahim, tells me they've invited fewer people than they would have liked because of the insecurity. As president of the Hema community in Bunya, he's lived through various bouts of conflict with the Lendu. He says the Hema will fight back if the violence isn't brought to an end. <laughs>
1: If the current government fails to protect us, then we will have to find a way to protect ourselves. But we know the current government has the law and the capacity
8: to protect us.
6: In the past, both ethnic groups mobilized militia to fight each other. Twenty years ago, it led to thousands of deaths. People here worry that if this conflict goes unchecked, it could spiral out of control. It's another growing conflict in a country sliding further into chaos.
0: Catherine Biarahunga reporting from Northeastern DRC. We're going to head now to a small Central European country we don't often hear from. But in Slovakia, a double murder is raising uncomfortable questions at the heart of government. A young journalist, Jan Kuciak, has been shot dead along with his part- partner, Martina Kuznirova. A police commander has said the motive was most likely connected to Mr. Kuciak's investigative work. Tom Nicholson is a Canadian Slovak investigative journalist who has been living and working in Slovakia for more than two decades. He got to know Jan Kuciak well.
9: He was a quiet, uh, educated guy, very conscientious. I first came into contact with him in 2012. He wrote me as a, when he was graduating from journalism school. During the years since then, we stayed a bit in contact because he and I tended to work on the same kinds of things, which is political corruption connected to either oligarchs or organised crime. And what in particular was he
0: working on at the time of his death?
9: I know from his editor and from Jan himself that he was working on a series of stories involving... Italian nationals living in Slovakia allegedly connected to the Geta organised crime group who were siphoning euro funds from Slovakia and sending them home to Italy.
0: Was he doing the, the sort of work that others simply aren't in Slovakia?
9: There's not a lot of work done on foreign criminal gangs. Slovak gangs themselves don't tend to be very murderous. There was lots written about him in the 90s in the worst part of Slovakia's post-communist transition, and nobody was ever murdered back then. But what Russians and Italians have been doing in Slovakia since then, particularly connected with European funds, has been underreported, and Jan had uh, his teeth into one of those stories. In terms of the
0: sort of impact this will have in Slovakia, it's a shocking double murder, but do you think there will be difficult questions now asked at the heart of government?
9: Yeah, it's an unprecedented event, really. A double murder of of a young journalist and his fiancée is just shocking. But there have been so many shocking things going on in Slovak politics for so long that I'm not sure that even this has the power to change the country's course. And I think people will demonstrate and they will be disgusted and they will go to the streets. But again, I'm very, very skeptical that this will actually change anything. Why do you say that? Because the country has become inured to the kind of misrule and corruption and uh, state capture, they call it, um, by oligarchs, by powerful groups. And while people are desperate, they've also understood that uh, desperation doesn't count for anything.
0: We've heard similar things said of other countries um, in Uh Central and Eastern Europe. And, of course, these are countries that are also part now of the European Union. They've been there for Mm -hmm. more than a decade. I I guess some people, if, if it's true what you say, some people in Slovakia might be wondering how much politics has really moved on.
9: Politics showed signs of moving on towards the time that Slovakia became a member of the European Union, because it really had to. They were under a lot of pressure to at least set out their storefront in a way that would be appealing. Um, But after 2004, I think the pressure was off and attention turned elsewhere and uh, Slovak politics like politics in Hungary and Poland and Czech Republic became again red in tooth and claw. And I, I don't think there was a lot of pushback from Brussels. In fact, I think the attitude was more that as long as you keep quiet and remember that you are taking our money, then you can do what you like.
0: Tom Nicholson talking to me about the young Slovak journalist and former colleague of his, Jan Kuciak, who's been murdered. This is NewsHour. If you can, stay with us. Plenty more to come in the next 30 minutes, including that uh, recently breaking story about the Saudi military top brass being fired.
6: Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, whatever the time of day, there is one place to go if you want to know what's going on in the world. The Global News Podcast... I'm Jackie Leonard and I'm one of the presenters. The great thing is we make new editions of our podcast seven days a week, bringing you unrivaled reporting and analysis from our correspondents around the world. You may be one of the many who listen already. Hello. And if you're not, do join us and see what you've been missing. Search for Global News wherever you get your podcasts. That's Global News from the BBC World Service.
0: Next on News, hour, Xi Jinping's star rises even higher. First, Nigeria is dealing with another mass abduction of schoolgirls by the Islamist insurgents of Boko Haram. Or rather, in the eyes of the desperate parents and others watching this episode across the country, the Nigerian authorities are not dealing with it, at least not in a remotely adequate fashion. More than 100 girls were kidnapped last week, and the missteps appear to be growing. Our reporter Stephanie Haggerty is following events from Lagos.
10: Well, we've heard very little about where the girls might be, though we've heard a lot about the effort to find them, at least in the last 24 hours. It took the government about six days to fully acknowledge what had happened, that there, an abduction, a kidnapping, had taken place. And last night they said 110 girls had been taken. Now, over the weekend, we were hearing different messages from different authorities about what exactly had happened and the governor of yobe state was very vocal in saying that he blamed the army for not protecting dapshe town he said that the army had pulled out just days before this happened we've had a statement from the army who have acknowledged this that they've they said yes they did pull out in the days before this happened but they said that was because they needed to redeploy troops to an area by the border with niger where another battalion had recently come under attack. They were both claims by the governor that he didn't know about this redeployment, and they said that this happened because Town was thought to be relatively secure. Uh, So that's the latest. We've been waiting for a statement for the army on this for quite some time, and that seems to be their defence.
0: It does seem to be a a catalogue of incompetence in terms of Firstly, you know, they, they said, no, none of these girls has actually been abducted. And then to hear that they'd left this place, which presumably, I mean, it, this is a place where Boko Haram have been active in the past. They left it completely unguarded.
10: And this was a big school. This was a school of 1,000, up to 1,000 students. And we, we know that Boko Haram have targeted uh, school children in the past. So that's something that a lot of people are focusing on how, after what happened in 2014 with the infamous kidnapping of the Chibok girls, that a school, a girls' school of that size could be left unguarded. What the army have said is that it was the job of the police to secure this school, that because Dapchi was deemed relatively secure uh, in an area that hadn't been attacked by Boko Haram in quite some time, they felt it was time to hand over security of the school and the town to the police
0: presumably in the meantime the parents of these girls are frantic because i imagine that the longer this goes on the more the chances diminish that they'll see their kids anytime soon
10: we've heard really really sad accounts from some of these parents who are distraught at the idea of of where their girls are now and what's happening to them we heard from one mother towards the end of last week who said that she would prefer to hear that her daughter was dead than that she was with boko Haram.
0: Stephanie Haggerty on the uh, mass abduction, the latest one by Boko Haram. This is Newsair, live from the BBC World Service in London. I'm Tim Franks. China is a one-party state. That much has been the case since the Communist Party proclaimed the People's Republic almost 70 years ago. But is China now also a one-man state? Over the weekend came the news that the party would abolish constitutional limits on presidential terms. In other words, Xi Jinping would not have to stand down in 2023. President Xi is already, by common consent, the most powerful leader China has had since the founder of the republic, Mao Zedong, and he died more than 40 years ago. Our Beijing correspondent John Sudworth has this report.
5: It's no secret that Xi Jinping has been tightening his grip on power. Just last month, thousands of soldiers screamed their loyalty to their president in a tub-thumping military parade broadcast on national TV. Now, though, a defining moment has been reached. State media reports of closed-door party meetings confirm that the two-term limit is to be scrapped.
8: China has become such a developed country. The middle class is increasing in size as well as in the number of wealthy command. And the Communist Party of China, with 87 million people as members, uh, is also becoming more and more as a sophisticated political
5: party. Victor Gao, a former English translator for one of China's iconic leaders, Deng Xiaoping, believes there is little to fear from this major constitutional overhaul.
8: I don't think anyone in China, either in the party or outside of the party, would sit tight to allow the return of a despot or tyrant back onto the political stage here in China. That means President Xi Jinping... Once he is freed up to serve more than two terms, we'll need to continue to dedicate himself to service the people, to improve the living standards of the people and to make
5: China a better country. But one ruler still casts a long shadow here. It was because of Chairman Mao that the two-term limit was introduced, put in place after his death to keep his kind of tyranny at bay. Today, despite heavy censorship, mocked-up images of President Xi as an emperor or with his portrait side-by-side with Chairman Mao at the gate of Beijing's Forbidden City have been appearing online. Only a few lone voices, though, are daring to speak out. Jiang Bao Chen, an activist jailed for mild dissent in the past, has signed and is circulating among his friends... An open letter criticizing the
1: change.
0: (laughs) (laughs) If you want to go backwards into history, it won't just be one or two people who feel angry and dissatisfied about this. A lot of people will feel angry about this, and if you look at this from a historical perspective, this action will be considered a failure.
5: You've been jailed for your activism before. Are you worried that there will be consequences as a result of signing this letter?
0: I'm sure trouble will come to me, but I'm fully prepared. After all, the only thing they can do is to put me in a prison. But this is a call for justice and someone must be prepared to do it. If everyone is afraid, then we might as well go back to the primitive society where a tyrant ruled as the emperor forever. That's impossible. That should never happen. I'm on the side of justice, so I have no fear and I think justice will always prevail.
5: For decades, China, it seemed, had cracked a conundrum faced by all authoritarian states – how to pull off regular, orderly transfers of power. That has now been called into question. President Xi may well be president for life, but he can't be president forever.
0: Our uh, Beijing correspondent, John Sudworth. Well, to discuss this, we brought together Robert Lawrence Kuhn. He's a longtime advisor to China's leaders and the Chinese government. He's the host of Closer to China on China Global Television Network. Uh, He joined us from California and Professor June Teufel-Dreyer is Professor of Political Science at the University of Miami and the author of China's Political System, Modernization and Tradition. To Robert Lawrence Kuhn, first of all, how risky a move is this?
1: It is a move that is actually less significant than it appears. The big moves in the party system that China has was in October 2016 when Xi was made core of the party – And then just last October at the 19th Party Congress, when Xi's so-called thought on socialism with Chinese characteristics of her new era, his thought was inscribed into the Constitution. Those were the two big events because that's where the real power is. So at that point, really, for the rest of Xi's sentient life... He would be leader, no matter who is president, which is an office that has no power. Right. Yet, well, sorry has, to interrupt. Has... I mean,
0: even if that were the case, then, I mean, if you're saying he's, he would be the leader for the rest of his sentient life, is that a good thing?
1: Ah, that's a, that's a completely different question. And this is a very important question that we need to deal with. Obviously, all systems of government have trade offs. Um, We can – it's no challenge to list what the difficulties are for a uh, a one-party system and a one-party system with one individual in such a predominant uh, position. It becomes more fragile. Uh, You're hostage to a person's health and mental stability, fewer checks and balances more stifling of dissent and opposing ideas on any topic much less political uh, so all of those are very clear the question is why is this being done and to that you have to look at what's happening in china today what are the big problems there are massive problems china talks okay. about uh, three big battles financial um uh, risk controlling financial risk is right at the top okay. Huge debts of corporations. so let, you have to break up interest groups in state-owned enterprises there's powerful things and the, the determination is that she needs this kind of power, this, this uh, absolute certainty that he will remain in order to affect well, these let, reforms.
0: Let me bring in Professor June teufel Dreyer. Uh, what do you make of that argument, that in order to affect big change, you need to have one big man at the helm?
2: That is certainly a cogent argument. However, I would reply that uh, absolute power means the ability to fail absolutely as well. We hear a lot about criticizing of the United States or warning the United States for imperial overstretch. And it seems to me that is exactly what Xi Jinping is doing. He is bullying countries in the South China Sea. He is bullying Japan in the East China Sea. He is spending over a trillion dollars on the one belt, one road, and he is setting himself up for a spectacular failure unless he can make this work. And the prospects for it making work are more and more remote.
0: Robert Lawrence-Kuhn, what are the checks and balances on Xi Jinping in that case?
1: Well, uh, first of all, I'd like to uh, comment that I I agree with uh, June in terms of uh, the issues that China faces internationally, South China Sea, East China Sea, Belt and Road, very complex issues. But there are two separate issues here that we need to think about. One is China's foreign policy in all those areas very legitimate area for conversation. The other is what she is doing domestically to consolidate his power in a way that maybe exceeded almost everyone's expectations. Um, And so these are two separate issues. Yeah, but if you, if you wouldn't
0: mind just answering my particular question, which is when one man accretes so much power, what are the checks and balances on him? Because he seems to have the entire system of government and the party in his thrall.
1: That is absolutely correct. And, you know, what we're dealing with is the hopefully the benign monarch or the philosopher king. And and one hopes that it will uh, that it will turn out more for the the good than for the evil. Well, has there been Uh, an
0: example in history you can point to?
1: Oh, I think there have been in many in many uh, countries uh, uh, benevolent uh, rulers, uh, but uh, you know they they, have, they generally don't make the history books as as, as much as the malevolent ones, uh, and certainly that's true in in China's history. Uh, the The main check and balance that we have here is really the Chinese people, because the you do not have the same environment that you had with Mao Zedong. So I think there's a natural check and balance. But it is much more fragile today, and the system has become much more fragile because of, uh, uh, because of this move by Xi. It has it been coming, but this is sort of the, the, uh, det- the absolute determination that's now and clearly in everybody's mind. There may be Profe- some other motivations.
0: Pro- sorry, uh, just because time is short, let me bring in uh, Professor June Dryer. I mean, what, what do you make of that argument, which I think more or less is that, look, let, let's not overreach ourselves. Mao Zedong, you had tens of millions of people dying from stuff like the Great Leap Forward. You had the madness of the Cultural Revolution. We're not there.
2: Uh, I have a number of points. First of all, I think that uh, the foreign policy and domestic policy are more intertwined than Mr. Kuhn seems to admit. Uh, One of the reasons for One Belt, One Road is a desire to export China's excess capacity, for one thing, and uh, hopefully, in this case, to have Chinese companies expand their economic prospects abroad, albeit at the expense of some of these countries they're going into. I also noticed that Mr. Kuhn said, one hopes, one hopes. He said it twice. Um, What is there beyond hope that you think this is going to turn out all right? And your answer was that, that the check and balance will be that of the Chinese people. However, particularly with these tremendously draconian censorship, including the use of artificial intelligence to check on people, how can the Chinese people provide a check and balance?
0: But isn't the argument against that, that if he fails to deliver uh, an increased uh, standard of living that there will be growing restiveness in China. And although we heard from, for example, that dissident uh, in John Sudworth's report, he is in an absolutely tiny minority at the moment.
2: They will not be able to organise to protest. Uh, what you will have at most is a couple of brave people, such as the preceding gentleman just indicated, and they will end up under horrid conditions in jail if you haven't yet read the book by Liao Yiwu on his time in jail, it's absolutely chilling. Uh, their Chinese people are not allowed to protest, and therefore they cannot provide the check and balance that you seem to indicate they are able to.
0: Robert Lawrence Kuhn, in the few seconds that we've got left for this, um, just do you think that there would have been any internal dissent in the Communist Party about uh, President Xi's latest power grab?
1: I'm sure there is uh, among broad segments. uh, But the fact is that uh, as of today, roughly 80% of the Chinese population support the government. Uh, They may have a lot of uh, problems with it, but they support the system as it is now because it affects their lives in a more positive way. They've seen that development. If that changes in the future, we'll have a significant difference. It's important to Distinguish between domestic politics, domestic economics, and international policy. Okay. Those, are se- those are separate and independent areas that must be analyzed independently.
0: That was Robert Lawrence Kuhn, longtime advisor to China's leaders and a host of a television show on China Global Television Network. And you also heard from Professor June Teufel Dreyer, author of China's Political System Modernization and Tradition, which I think is just into its record-breaking 10th edition. Clearly a must-buy. This is News Hour from the BBC. Our top story this hour. Russia says that there will be a daily five-hour pause in the fighting in Syria from Tuesday to allow civilians to flee the enclave of eastern Ghouta. Speaking on NewsHour, Boutaina Shaban, the political adviser to Syria's President Assad, complained about the skewed media coverage of the civilian suffering caused by Syrian and Russian bombing of Eastern Ghouta.
4: I think the world should have at least an inkling of what five million Syrian people in Damascus had been going through due to the criminal acts perpetrated by the terrorists in eastern Ghouta and near Damascus.
0: And uh, one other headline, Saudi Arabia has sacked the entire military top brass. We'll be uh, finding out why, or at least asking why, in just a few minutes. This is News NewsHour, live from the BBC in London with me, Tim Franks. And in an analogy that probably holds no water whatsoever, I'm going to say that like London buses, you wait for hours, for ages, for a, a story about the Saudi military and two turn up in one go. Uh, the first is that uh, the top brass in the military have all been sacked. That broke just before we came on air, and we'll get more on that in a moment. But... Uh, Just before that, there was news of an unusual, in fact, unprecedented job opportunity in the military for women uh, in that for the first time, Saudi has opened applications for women to join the military. Uh, Dr. Madawi al-Rashid is from Saudi Arabia and is a visiting professor at the Centre for Middle East Studies at the London School of Economics.
7: The details of the employment of women in this sector are still unknown. Uh, we don't know whether women are going to be in the police force, are going to patrol the streets, or they are going to have an administrative role to play within the military. But to think that Saudi women are going to be soldiers deployed uh, in the battlefield is, is actually far-fetched and unrealistic.
0: In such a conservative uh, kingdom, the very fact that job applications are open to to women to join the military in some capacity, it, it does have a a certain weight, doesn't it?
7: It's very much like the uh, uh, lifting the ban on driving. I mean, women across the Muslim world have been driving for decades. And uh, it, to congratulate Saudi women uh, for uh, being allowed to drive in the 21st century is a little bit uh, too much because it is a right. And in fact, we need to ask why this has not happened before and what the significance, the symbolic significance of these gestures that the Saudi regime is making making. Is it to appeal to a Western audience? Is it to attract in foreign investment? Is it to ameliorate the image of a country that is ridden with uh, serious problems, repression, uh, fanatic curriculum, uh, religious tradition that denounces every other Muslim on the planet? All these kinds of issues need to be addressed before I personally celebrate the fact that women will be allowed to be employed in sectors of the military.
0: Do you think that there, there is likely to be interest among women in, in this new job opportunity?
7: Well, some women will probably apply simply because they need a job. Women are actually part of the labor force, but in a very, very limited way. And uh, that we, Saudi Arabia needs women uh, employment opportunities simply because the salary of one man is no longer enough to bring up a family. And uh, more and more women need a job. It's not a luxury to have a job, and it's not about just you know, uh, government propaganda. They need the income.
0: How deeply do you think Saudi Arabia is changing at the moment?
7: There are lots of changes, but unfortunately, these changes are coming from the top and uh, they are imposed on society. What is really interesting to see is how debate is actually silenced in Saudi Arabia. So there's a lot of hype about the new revolutionary reform that takes place in the country under the leadership of the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. But part of that is to silence every critical voice. So for any kind of reform agenda to be successful, you need to open up debate in the public sphere so that people could debate what is being uh, changed and give their opinion. But we're not seeing that at all in Saudi Arabia. All these are uh, top-down decisions that are made regardless of what society wants or aspires to.
0: Madawi al-Rashid from the London School of Economics. Well, As I mentioned, there was another big uh, Saudi military story, and it is uh, that all the top military commanders have been sacked in a series of late-night royal decrees. Our security correspondent, Frank Gardner, is a regional specialist. Um, Frank... What do you think lies behind this decision?
11: Well, this is really a continuation of the extraordinary reforms that Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman is enacting. Um, Really, in a way, I think it's almost stopped surprising people. Um, He has replaced, at a stroke, the top brass of the military. The Saudi military is, frankly, not particularly competent – the National Guard is, but the main, the mainstream military is not particularly competent. They didn't give a good account of themselves uh, against Saddam's forces in '91. They've not done particularly well in Yemen. Um, they face a number of threats, and he has replaced a number of older commanders with younger, fresher blood. And this is really what he's doing all across the board. He is surrounding himself with younger people, people he trusts. He's extremely popular with Saudi youth. But what he doesn't have is a loyal allegiance from certain tribal quarters. So, for example, Abdullah, who was king and before that was crown prince, for many years he commanded the National Guard. So he had the allegiance of the tribes. Mohammed bin Salman doesn't have that. What he has done, though, is to make deputy governors out of a number of descendants of three key princes – um, that's Prince Ahmed, Prince Mugrin and Prince Talal because their line was feeling very much put out by the elevation of this 32-year-old who essentially rode roughshod over their interests. So he's going some way to appease them and Saudi Arabia is very much a, a balance of alliances. It's, a, it's an alliance between the ulama, the religious authorities and the al Saud. The, the, the ruling princes. But it's also within the vast sprawling royal family. It's very much a balance of forces. And if he gets that wrong, he risks making some enemies. So in a way, he will have made some more enemies by what he's done tonight. But he will also have appeased some people.
0: Does it also suggest, Frank, that he's rather keen for some sort of deus ex machina to try and sort things out in Yemen because the war isn't going well there?
11: No, the war is a disaster there. The the, the the Saudis, and to a lesser extent the Emiratis, have bitten off far more than they could chew. Um, I went to Riyadh as soon as the Saudis began their air war in March, April 20, 2015, and I interviewed their commander at the time. I went to the Coalition Air Operations Centre, and I think he was pretty confident at the time, sharing the confidence of Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, that they could essentially bomb the Houthis ...to the negotiating table, that the Houthis, who had taken over most of Yemen, would sue for peace. That hasn't happened. The Houthis have been extraordinarily resilient. They represent less than 15% of Yemenis. They are not representative of the wider Yemeni government, but nevertheless... They have become more popular because the Saudis have carried out these airstrikes which have killed enormous numbers of civilians and are hugely unpopular. Saudi Arabia is not popular in Yemen.
0: Frank Gardner, our security correspondent and regional uh, expert on uh, the Gulf Arabs. Thank you very much for joining us. That's it from NewsHour. From me, Tim Franks, and the rest of the team here in London, thanks for your company.
7: NewsHour has been a download from the BBC. To discover more and our terms of use, visit bbc.com slash podcasts.